And now, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, with brief reference along the way to Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 to 20. As always, I encourage you to have your Bible open to Hebrews so you can follow along as we return this morning to our study of Hebrews chapter 11. This is where we will spend the weeks of Epiphany uh, and even into Lent some. And it's after a few weeks of being away from our Hebrews study that we come back now to verse 13. I can still remember from my days as a new Christian something my Baptist pastor once said in a sermon. I can remember a number of things he said at various times, but this one in particular was significant for me. I don't remember, in fact, the text that he was preaching on. I wish I did. But the point that my pastor made stuck because it made quite an impression on me as a teenager. What my pastor said was this, how a person dies has a lot to do with how they've lived. How a person dies has a lot to do with how they've lived. He did not mean by that that the physical cause of death is usually connected to how they've lived. Usually it isn't. In some cases it may be. What he meant, rather, was that the way in which a person comes to grips with the fact of their imminent death, how they approach death, their manner in dying, that's often connected to how they've lived. Certainly, when we face the reality of death in our own lives, or we face it in the lives of others close to us, it causes us, at least, to consider what it is we've lived or are living for, doesn't it? Maybe we could say that how a person dies has a lot to do with what they've lived for, which, of course, shapes how they live. In Hebrews chapter 11, we've been studying the faith of some of the earliest men and women in the Bible. Beginning in verse 8, the pastor writing Hebrews turned our attention to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's with their examples in view that we come this morning to verse 13, where the pastor says, these all died in faith. The wording here is important. They died in faith. We notice perhaps the nuance of that because all through Hebrews chapter 11, almost everything is by faith, right? By faith, Abel offered to God an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. As we saw over a few different weeks in the month of December, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out from Ur. By faith he went to live or sojourned in the land of promise. By faith Sarah received power to conceive. But verse 13 doesn't say these all died by faith. 
The pastor isn't saying that it was by virtue of faith that the patriarchs died. No, the point is that they all died in faith. Literally, according to faith. It was the manner of their death that the pastor highlights here in verse 13, that it was in accordance with the principle of faith that they faced the moment of death, the end of their living and acting on earth. As one commentator puts it, these believers of the past did not allow the crisis of death to invalidate the principle of faith. They died in faith. Which is what made me think back to what my Baptist pastor said so many years ago that never left me. How a person dies has a lot to do with how they've lived. And so I'll put it this way as we come to our study of verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. The point is that we are to live by faith in such a way that when we die, we die in faith. We live by faith in order to die in faith. We live by faith so that when the ultimate test of death arrives, we sail through it, brothers and sisters. Why? Because we're ready for it. Because death itself isn't enough to shake our faith. Which I think is getting at the heart of what the pastor is emphasizing throughout Hebrews 11, actually. It's been a while, but do you remember why the pastor began this survey of faith in chapter 11? It's worth reviewing it, I think, so that we don't lose sight of it. Look back, if you have your Bible there, to the end of chapter 10 and to verse 36. Chapter 10, verse 36, all along has been a kind of key verse uh, for us in our study of Hebrews. The pastor says there, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So here's a question to help focus what's implied there in that verse that leads us into Hebrews 11. When can it be said that we've done the will of God and so receive what is promised? At what point is that true of us? Notice how the two things go together. We receive what is promised when we have done the will of God. Well, when is that the case? The answer is when our journey of faith is over. When the Lord looks at our life of faith and declares, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's when it can be said of us that we endured, that we made it, that we're righteous because we lived by faith and did not shrink back, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 says. 
Paul talks about this moment in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes there, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In other words, I'm about to die. My life has come to an end. Paul wrote these words from 2 Timothy under Roman imprisonment. He expected to be executed before too long, but that's okay. He's ready to die. Why? Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's when we've done the will of God and receive what is promised, you see. It's when we die, brothers and sisters, assuming we die in faith. That's why we need endurance. The whole point of living by faith is so that when we die, we die in faith. The entire book of Hebrews teaches that God commends the life of faith. And as we've said from day one, that's not just about what we did yesterday or what we did the day before that or last Tuesday or 24 years ago when we prayed perhaps the sinner's prayer. All of that's part of your life of faith, just as the things we're considering in Hebrews chapter 11 were part of the lives of faith of the men and women listed there. But that's not all of it, because what you and I need isn't a certain number of moments of faith in the past. What we need is endurance in the present. What we need is to live by faith today and tomorrow and 24 years from now. So that when we die, it can be said of us that we died in faith. And so I think what verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews 11 are all about is how that happens. What it is we need to understand in order to keep going, to live by faith all the way to the end. We've talked a lot about faith in this Hebrews series already. I know there's going to be some overlap this morning with things we've said before. But that's fine. Because I think we need to hear it again and again and again. We live by faith in order to die in faith. So let's start in verse 13 with what dying in faith means. And then in verses 14 to 16, we'll consider again what it means to live by faith. Make sense? We're looking at what it means to die in faith in verse 13, and then we're looking at what it means to live by faith in verses 14 to 16. So first, what does it mean to die in faith according to verse 13? What is death that is according to faith, as the Greek literally says? Well... It means to die still believing, 
but not having all the things faith sets itself upon, right? There are four things verse 13 says about dying in faith. Let's look at them. These all died in faith, the pastor writes, and what was true at their death? Number one, not having received the things promised, but number two, having seen them, and number three, greeted them from afar, and number four, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Those four things are true of someone who dies in faith. In other words, they're the things that have so characterized their life that when it comes time to die, this is the stance of their souls, if you will. This is the manner in which they approach death. It's not different from how they lived. It's the logical end point of how they lived. So let's consider what these four things mean, and then we'll look more closely as, at what it is that drives such a life of faith in verses 14 to 16. First, to die in faith means that you complete the life of faith, but at the time of death, you haven't yet received what God has promised. You live your whole life in anticipation of the promises, and then you die not having received them, not yet. Death has to come first. This is the case for all people of faith, not just the patriarchs. If you look down to the end of chapter 11, you see this in chapter 11, verse 39. After the entire list of faithful exemplars is complete, the pastor says, and all these, meaning all these from the whole chapter, did not receive what was promised. Oh, they will receive it along with us, as verse 40 explains. But like them, unless the Lord returns first in our lifetimes, we'll have to die not having received what was promised. So what is that? What are the things promised? Well, already perhaps you can sense that I think the things promised in verse 13 refers to the same reality as what was promised in verse 39. Not everyone thinks that. Some scholars suggest that the things promised in verse 13 are specifically the promises made to Abraham, the promises of land, of a son, of posterity, of blessing. And I think those promises are indeed included in what's meant there in verse 13. But I think it's not just that. And I think we know it's not just that because of verses 14 to 16. The pastor says of these patriarchs and matriarchs that they were seeking a homeland, a better country that is a heavenly one. We started talking a little about this back in verses 9 and 10 several weeks ago, if you recall. Abram went to Canaan and he was there living in tents as Isaac and Jacob would do also why? Verse 10, 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham and the patriarchs and matriarchs got it. I don't think verse 13 means merely that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob didn't see the full realization of the land and the posterity in their lifetimes. Of course those things weren't fully realized when they died, but that wasn't the end goal of the promises and they knew it. Their hopes were not merely fixed on earthly property and physical lineage, as if all God was doing was giving his people a lot of land and many descendants. Of course not. Abraham knew it went way beyond that. In Genesis chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old and the Lord is filling out for him the content of the covenant, the Lord says in chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land for an everlasting possession. As one scholar writes of those promises in Genesis 17, their faith, meaning the faith of Abraham and Sarah and those after them, their faith accordingly met the challenge to penetrate beyond death and beyond this present world for the promise of an everlasting possession and universal blessing portended far more than the rights to a piece of geographical territory and a privileged posterity. Their hope was concentrated on an eternal realm in which they themselves as well as the succeeding generations of those who belonged to the line of the promise would be everlastingly blessed. Are the promises here about land and people? Yes. But given the fullness of what God had promised, from Abraham's vantage point, both of those categories were so massive that they had to be about something far greater than the so-called promised land of Canaan, you see. For here or there the Lord himself would be their God and dwell with them forever. It was salvation that was the focus of Abraham's faith, life with God in a place. Hebrews teaches that only in Christ would the means of that salvation become clear. That only in Christ would the means of the inheritance promised to the descendants of Abraham be understood. The promise that drove the faith of all the Old Testament saints is the same promise driving our faith, brothers and sisters, what do you think Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
That's the second component here, actually, in what it means to die in faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, the pastor writes, to die in faith means seeing the promises. Now, what the pastor means here is the kind of seeing that's not done with our earthly physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, if you will. They perceived what the fulfillment of God's promises, they perceived that the fulfillment of God's promises was not yet. Death of all things would make that crystal clear. And yet at the time of death, it could be said that they saw the things promised. That's why Jesus could say, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day with his own physical eyes in the resurrection life of the new heaven and the new earth is what I think Jesus means there. Jesus could say that and then also go on to say at the same time, he saw it. He saw it from afar. He saw it with the eyes of faith, if you will, and was glad. So real were God's promises to Abraham that their fulfillment, though not yet, and indeed without Abraham knowing the full means by which they would ultimately be accomplished, nonetheless they were to him as certain as something already and inalienably possessed. Truly he and others of his day did see the certain reality and future fulfillment of the promises with the eyes of faith. Just as the Bible can talk about hearing and talk about the hearing of faith to mean our full comprehension and so obedient response to the Lord. One commentator says, by faith they see that is, they give their full attention to and live in full accord with the not yet visible future fulfillment of the promise. By keeping their eyes on God's promised eternal blessings, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set the pattern for all God's people. It is living by this vision that makes them people of faith and sustains their perseverance. Not only did they see the things promised at the time of death, thirdly, the pastor says they greeted them from afar. Dying in faith means we do that, brothers and sisters. We come to our very moment of death greeting with all our heart the things promised. The sense of this word is the idea of a the greeting of travelers who can see home but don't yet enjoy the comforts of home. And it could mean that they see it with their actual eyes as in they've been on a long journey and then as they crest the hill way off in the distance they can see their home. Or it can mean that they see it in the eyes of their mind, if you will. 
If you've ever been on perhaps a long or difficult or challenging journey in life, perhaps you know something of what this is, to, to see home. What happens when you see it, if only in your mind's eye? Does not your heart greet it? <laughs> you embrace it. You welcome it before you even get there. These believers of the ancient world saw and greeted the promised consummation even, or maybe we should say especially, in the hour of death. As though already face to face with it. And the point is, it's no different for us. Oh, we know far more than they did. We know the coming of Jesus the Messiah has put the foundation of the promises on rock-solid ground. That's what Hebrews is all about. I know it's been a long time, but listen again to chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. The pastor writes, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's the heartbeat of Hebrews. It is our hope, but it's still a future reality, dear friends. The promises are still future. Are there present aspects to it? Of course. And yet, we too must come to the end of our life of faith, and when the time comes to die, our hearts must see and greet from afar the same promises of God eternally secured for us by our great high priest. Which is why, fourthly, we, like the patriarchs and matriarchs, are to live and die confessing that we are but strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the end of verse 13. And it's the final thing the pastor says here about those who died in faith. They died in faith having acknowledged, though I prefer the translation having confessed, they died in faith having confessed, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To die in faith means we embrace the fact that this heavenly destination is ours and always has been ours. I like the translation confessing here because the idea is that this is a lifestyle we embrace. We confess our status as strangers and exiles, or if you like, as resident aliens and transients. And this is where Genesis chapter 23 comes in. We're not going to talk much about Genesis 23. Allison read it earlier. Mainly, I just want you to see Genesis chapter 23, verse 4. Sarah has died while in Hebron in the land of Canaan. And as an act of faith in the face of death, what does Abraham do? He buys burial land. 
Verse 3 says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. He's in the land, the land that's been promised to his descendants. Give me property, he says, among you for a burying place that, it may, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And look at how they respond to him in verses 5 and 6. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. No, no, the Hittites were not entirely positive in this whole interaction. They're trying to get as much silver out of Abraham as they can. Abraham's good for his word. He pays them an enormous sum for the land that he gets. But the point here is that Abraham was exactly what he said he was. He was a sojourner and a foreigner. He's living in his tents, moving around from place to place. That's his status. He knows it. He confesses it. You see, he embraces it, in fact, as we saw back in verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 11. Part of the point of this Genesis 23 narrative is that Abraham's greatness, he's called a prince of God, his greatness isn't connected to possessing huge swaths of land. He's a prince of God precisely in his status as a sojourner and foreigner. And the connection here is clear to Hebrews chapter 11 because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the second word used of Abraham there in Genesis 23 verse 4 is the same word as is translated exiles here in Hebrews in the ESV. Remember that the pastor writing Hebrews is constantly reading the Greek version of the Old Testament. He uses the word that Abraham used, the word that could be translated transience. It describes those who stay, whose stay in a place is temporary. It can describe those who are lodging, for example, in an inn without a home in the place where they're sojourning, even if they would be there for a while. That's what Abraham says about himself. That's what our Hebrews text affirms. He and those who follow him in faith acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Unless we think that the point is that it was only because they weren't yet able to settle in the land that Abraham and the patriarchs talked that way, consider this. That exact word also appears in Psalm chapter 39, Verse 12, on the lips of King David. David, of all people, was in the land. Did that change how he saw himself and the Israelites he ruled over? No, it didn't. Listen to what David says in Psalm 39, verse 12, which, for any of you who have a Greek Septuagint, it's Psalm 38, verse 12, for reasons that don't matter, but just in case you're checking. For the rest of us, Psalm 39, verse 12, David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Did you hear that? I am a sojourner, David says. 
like all my fathers. That's David recognizing that what Abraham said applies to him as well. Earlier in that same Psalm 39, David said, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You can find the same sequence of thought from the lips of David also in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 1 Chronicles 29 verse 14, as David is presenting the people's offering at the temple in the heart of the land, David prays, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. And then listen to verse 15, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Do you see the significance of Abraham's words from Genesis 23 there? This is David we're talking about, only that's not the end of it. In the New Testament, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and following, but you, speaking now to Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's what Abraham and the patriarchs were. That's what David was and all the people with him. That's what we are, dear friends. To be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession means by definition that we're strangers and exiles on the earth. Think about that. Is that your perspective? These all died in faith, the victory of their faith and our faith at the moment of death will be the culminating acknowledgement of what will have been the confession of their lives all along. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. This present world system isn't our true home and our ultimate destination, not because the goal is somehow to become unearthly, as if heaven is about doing away with our physical existence or some such thing. No, that's not the point. That's not the promise at all. In fact, that's the opposite of the promise. The heavenly country to which we journey is the new heavens and the new earth. In fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says that the new creation reality that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. At the last, the new city comes down from heaven to earth. Heaven and earth will be one, recreated and reunited. That's what our fathers and mothers in faith confessed. And that's what we must confess as well. Now and in the hour of our death, we are strangers and exiles on earth. So now with time running out, 
we come to the rest of our passage in verses 14 to 16. And I will not be able to do justice to these verses in just a few short minutes, I realize, so let me focus our attention now on what from these verses helps us, I think, as we try to think about living by faith. Because we said earlier that we live by faith in order to die in faith. Verse 13 gave us this picture of what dying in faith looks like. Now I want to ask, what does living by faith look like? Or to go right to the heart of it, what's the key to living by faith? How will we do this? I see two points in verses 14 to 16 where the pastor tells us two clues for us to think about as we examine our own lives, and they are the simple words, seek and desire. Look first at verse 14. The pastor says, For people who speak thus, that is, who acknowledge or confess that they're strangers and exiles on the earth in the end of verse 13, what's true of people who say that? The pastor tells us, People who speak thus make it clear they show that they are seeking a homeland. I think that's key. To die in faith is to acknowledge that all along you were a stranger in exile in this world. What does that reveal about you and how you lived your life? It reveals that you lived a life seeking a homeland. Now, homeland there doesn't actually have the word land in the Greek. The word in question comes from, derives from the word in Greek for father. It denotes the place where people belong, where they are at home, where their family is, where they are natives, where they are citizens sometimes. In fact, it wouldn't be a stretch to translate this term as a place where they are citizens. That was often a city in the ancient world, you may know. And loyalty to one's place of birth and citizenship was a cardinal virtue. A life banished from one's city was considered by many to be hardly worth living. The pastor's hearers would feel what he says here. If being people who live by faith means we're self-confessed aliens in this world, then what is it that would naturally be driving our whole lives? We would be seeking a homeland. Most anxious to reach that home, such people diligently seek it. The pastor uses the same word here that he used for the pursuit of God back in verse 6. Point is that a sojourner living by faith in God's promises is always seeking their true home. Not settling in here. Not seeking ultimate satisfaction in the pleasures of this life. Not simply conforming to this world. Strangers and exiles on the earth cannot treat their earthly homeland whether in our case that means a country or a city or even something smaller like a household. We cannot make that the core source of our identity. That's precisely what the pastor says Abraham and those after him did not do in verse 15, right? They were seeking a homeland, but let there be no mistake, the homeland they sought was in Ur of the Chaldeans. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
which is precisely what their homeland would have been in the ancient world, if they had been thinking of that, well, then they would have had opportunity to return. Nothing except his faith stopped Abraham from saying, you know, I don't really want to be a sojourner after all. Let's head back to Ur. He didn't do that. Because in fact, Abraham didn't think of Ur as his native place any longer, you see. Only now, as we've also seen, picking up from Genesis 23, Abraham didn't think that way either about Canaan. He didn't see Canaan as his homeland either. Neither Ur nor Canaan was his homeland. So what was it? Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's the homeland they sought. And I guess the point is that that's the homeland they sought because that's the homeland they desired, you see. The word here in verse 16, it has the sense of aspiring to or longing for something. One commentator translates it, they were ardently desiring it. And one more time, friends, what is it exactly that they were so ardently desiring? Well, of the better country, Pastor writes, a heavenly one where they could live as citizens in their home city. We've encountered that word better before in Hebrews a few times. Most notably, perhaps, we saw it used to describe the work of Christ in cleansing God's people from sin, thus allowing our entrance into the heavenly places. In chapter 9, verse 23, we read, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It is Christ's better sacrifices that make possible the faithful's entrance into the better country, brothers and sisters. It's called the heavenly country because it is the place that's been established by the living God to be the permanent place of his own abode with his people. And we'll have more to say about that as we move into chapter 12 of Hebrews, but it's where we'll enjoy full fellowship with God and enter his eternal rest. One author says these people who live by faith were not only diligently seeking this heavenly home city, they were ardently desiring it. This pursuit was no mere hobby or pastime. It was much more than insurance against damnation while they attended to their own affairs. It was the passion and the main business of life. I like that. It was the passion and the main business of life because its object was the only true source of blessing and rest. And therein lies the key to living by faith and dying in faith, my friends. The logic of this passage is inescapable. The better heavenly city is our homeland, Christians. That's our native place. That's where our citizenship 
lies. And if you don't feel like that's true, then start there in thinking about your life of faith. Paul moves here in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for many of whom I have told often you and now tell you even with tears. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame listen to this, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The way to know if we're living by faith is to ask ourselves this key question, do we seek this homeland? Do we desire this better country? Where are our minds set, dear friends? As he so often does, Jesus presents it as a simple challenge. He says in Matthew 6, verse 21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think we can say that where your heart is, there surely is your home. Like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the faithful who follow in their footsteps, we live by faith in order that we might die in faith. Only then will the words written at the end of verse 16 apply not only to them, but also to us. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.